May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, we celebrate the ascension of our Lord. One of those days when we are struck as we are on the occasions of his birth, death, and resurrection, that Jesus, God, came down to earth and lived among us. An event of such staggering immensity that, as the theologian Karl Barth puts it, it is like a stone thrown into the center of a pond from which ripples spread out, changing everything else in our world, our history, up to heaven and down to hell, back to the beginning of time and forward to its end. But in this week of immense sadness, I wondered whether I should talk about Uvalde. But as yet, I have only sorrow, emotions. I'm not sure what yet I can say that would be theologically helpful. So today, in the context of Ascension Day, I want instead to talk about one of the other big issues that currently roils so many communities in this country and also roils so many churches. The issue is abortion. I understand that this is fraught, so let me tell you how I will and will not approach this. This sermon is not intended to be a political or a partisan one, nor about the law or the constitution, and is not intended to be a medical or bioethical one. What I will do is focus on the religious aspect, drawing as I have before on the classic Anglican framework of God's scripture the tradition of the church, and our God-given reason. And I will do this respectfully because I understand and fully accept that good people of faith can, in all sincerity, come down on different sides of this issue. I will come to a conclusion, and not all of you may agree with it. But if you don't, then I pray that you will treat it as the beginning of a possible conversation rather than the end. And finally, in this framing, let me say that I do not regard any abortion as an occasion for celebration. It's more likely to be an occasion for sadness, perhaps relief, sometimes regret, but not celebration. In a perfect world, there would be no need for abortions. But, as we all know, that is not the world in which we live and I'll come back to that. So let me now talk about this in terms of that Anglican three-part framework. First, scripture. Well, long story short, there's not much. In the very long list of prohibited acts in the law of Moses, there is really only one passing reference in the book of Exodus, and that is not to abortion as such, but to causing miscarriage. As to the underlying premise for some views on abortion, namely that life begins at conception, there is little biblical support for that either. It is true. There is the magnificent poetry of Psalm 139. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, That I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
But this is poetry, not religious biology. And it's also worth noting that that psalm finishes like this. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. And even more disturbingly, perhaps, only two psalms earlier in Psalm 137, which begins with a lament by the rivers of Babylon, the psalmist has this to say about infants. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. In the Jewish tradition, a fetus is not a person. According to the Talmud, that collection of Jewish interpretation and tradition, for the first 40 days, a fetus is mere fluid. And even after that does not become a person until birth, the point at which the soul enters the body. So there is not much in the Hebrew scriptures and possibly even less in the New Testament. Nothing on abortion, nothing on when life starts. Not from Jesus nor St. Paul. It is true, our Lord talks often about children and their importance and their vulnerability. But children, not the unborn. So the scriptural basis for saying abortion is a sin or that life begins at conception rather than at birth seems quite limited. So what about the second element? the tradition of the church. Well, this is generally clearer. From early days, abortion has been regarded as a sin and life has been viewed as starting at conception. But even here, there are some subtle distinctions. For a long period of time, there was a distinction drawn between the point at which the baby quickened or moved in the womb and the period before that. And in more recent years, especially in some of the Protestant denominations, the position has become more nuanced. To focus on Episcopalianism, back in 1967, the General Convention agreed, in quotes, that all human life is sacred. Hence, it is sacred from its inception until death. Human life, therefore, should be initiated only advisedly and in full accord with its understanding of the power to conceive and give birth, which is bestowed by God. Additionally, the General Convention has made clear that, again in quotes, we emphatically oppose abortion as a means of birth control, family planning, sex selection, or any reason of mere convenience. However, at the same time, our denomination has maintained its, again in quotes, unequivocal opposition to any legislation on the part of national or state governments which would abridge or deny the right of individuals to reach informed decisions about the termination of pregnancy and to act upon them. And finally, in 2018, the General Convention agreed that, last quotes, women's reproductive health and re reproductive health and reproductive health procedures should be treated as all other medical procedures and that access to women's reproductive health care is an integral part of a woman's struggle to assert her dignity and worth as a human being. So again, while the weight of church tradition is against abortion and states that life begins at conception, there are nuances. 
and in our own tradition, there is an increasingly strong belief that this should be the decision of the woman, the woman involved, and no one else. So we come to the third element, to reason. Now to be clear, this reason is not about finding a justification to do whatever we wanted to do anyway. Rather, it requires us to re-examine the scriptures and the tradition in light of what our God-given reason tells us about the world we are living in right now and the needs of our fellow human beings. In this case, with abortion, especially in relation to the scriptures, that actually requires us to read between the lines a little, to discern what may be God's will. And this is where I want to come back to Ascension Day. In almost all major religions, God is in one way or another transcendent. Big word, but it means far away, distant, up there, immortal, invisible God, only wise, as the hymn puts it. But the whole point of Ascension Day is that our God is also imminent, another big word, which means present, down here, close by, living as one of us, flesh and blood. And that informs my view of this subject. A transcendent God doesn't really do nuance, often doesn't do individuals. A transcendent God is more about absolutes and rules. A transcendent God requires others, priests, whomever, to enforce those rules for him. A transcendent God up there and far away too often seems to be angry, disappointed, sometimes vengeful, harsh, and often punishing. But Jesus, the imminent God that we got, is different. I give you a new commandment, he tells the disciples. You are to love one another. Judge not, he says, lest you be judged. This is Jesus, fully human and fully divine, relating to other humans as individuals, not ants, seen from a great height, way down there, but as unique individuals standing right before him, each with their own story, their own needs, their own hurt, their own longing to be forgiven, to be reconciled, to be healed. At the ascension, this human Jesus was taken from us, but he had existed, and we are promised he will come again. His life was not simply an interlude between two periods of a transcendent God, but to go back to Karl Barth, it was that stone thrown into the center of human and cosmic history that changed everything, everything. While Jesus did not have anything to say about abortion or about when life begins, he did have a lot to say about how you and I, individually and communally, should treat other living human beings, and especially women. He spent much time with women who were looked down upon, mistreated, and abused by men. Women whom he treated with respect and caring. Women who were treated as chattels, slaves and prostitutes. He treated as beloved children of God. Think of the low-status Syrophoenician woman who wanted healing for her child, and who changed Jesus' mind with her faith. 
Think of the Samaritan woman by the well, also low status, to whom he divulged the good news of salvation. Think of the woman with internal bleeding, impoverished by doctors and condemned as permanently unclean by the law, who was healed by touching the hem of his cloak. Think of the woman, likely a prostitute, who washed his feet with tears and her hair and anointed them with oil at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and who, Jesus made very clear to the Pharisee, had treated him with so much more care and respect than Simon had. And remember, above all, the woman caught in adultery. Anxious and eager in their bloodlust to execute the iron law of the transcendent God, the crowd wanted to stone her to death. But Jesus asked whichever one of them that was without sin to cast the first stone. And when they had all slunk away, he told the woman that he would condemn her neither. My application of reason to this issue leads me to believe that while Jesus would not have celebrated an abortion, he would have understood the dilemma, the plight of a woman caught in difficult, if not impossible, circumstances, and would not have condemned. Rather, he would have embraced her with his healing love. Senator Tim Scott wrote a very moving piece in the Washington Post two weeks ago about how his single mother raised him against the odds and how he disagreed that abortion was the way to improve the lot of single black women. I cite this only to say that if people like Tim Scott's mother want to go to term and raise their kids, then God bless them for that. And the individuals and community around them should do everything, everything, to support them financially and emotionally. But equally, as that unique individual stands before Jesus, who am I to intervene between them? Who am I to tell that woman, any woman, what to do? As a community, we should do everything we can to support her, everything short of making her decision for her. If Jesus did not condemn, then nor should I or you. The message of Ascension Day is that we have a God who is, yes, all-powerful, but also laser-focused on us as individuals whom he knows intimately and loves profoundly. I'll close where I started by saying that no abortion is a cause for celebration. And in a perfect world, none would be necessary. But my understanding of God, both imminent and transcendent, is that in the absence of that perfection, God wants us to work towards it, not through the enactment of more rules, not through more enforcement, not through punishment, but through love. Love for any woman who wants to go to term, through support of her and her child before and after birth, and throughout that child's entire childhood, within an embracing community. But also love for any woman who feels she cannot go to term by accepting her decision and supporting her also in that same embracing community. That, I believe, is what our God asks of you and of me. Until that day, when he returns to perfect all things, including this, 
when at last he will wipe every tear from our eyes and death and mourning and crying and pain at last will be no more. In God's name I pray. Amen.